Would you pray with me? Father, we confess our great need of you. We ask you to speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word, that we might receive what you have for us, not merely a human opinion, but your revealed and perfect and powerful word. Speak to us this morning. Ready our minds and our hearts to receive. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. Um, Regularly as a church, we want to carve out space in our preaching to, to revisit some of our core principles, our mission, our core values, our, our vision for, for who we are as a church, and kind of cast some fresh vision for who we are and where we're going. Part of the reason for this is because we're all prone to drift. In the corporate world, it's referred to as mission creep. In hymn language, it sounds a little bit like prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The reality is that no matter our best intentions, Things like mission and vision and values that we all hold to as individuals or as parts of organizations tend to lose their meaning as cruise control takes over. So we want to revisit some of these things that that mark us as a church. We want to recapture them together so that we might better live out as individuals and as a church family the things we say we value the most. So we're calling this series over the next five weeks more of the same. And that, while that might sound somewhat uninspiring, it's very purposefully titled. For the past 11 years, our core values as a church have remained pretty consistent, and Lord willing, they will remain consistent for as long as He sees fit for us to exist. We want to lean into those values, to more fully embody them, to more faithfully live out this shared identity. We are united to Christ. We're built together as a family. We are commissioned out for the purpose of being agents of hope and healing in our community. That's why we're here. And so to do that, we're taking the next five weeks and we're going to walk through our stated core values, taking each one in turn and digging into the scriptures that inform that particular value. Specifically, we're asking this question, how does Our gospel centrality, we would say we would strive to be gospel-centered. How does gospel centrality show itself in our core values? How does gospel centrality bear fruit in our lives in these ways? So our series will be broken down over the next five weeks like this. Today, we'll look at God's Word. That our gospel is grounded in the Word of God. We'll look at multiplication, that the gospel multiplies. It is multiplicative, which is a great word. It it reproduces itself as it's preached. We're going to look at community, that the gospel is tested and proved in community with one another as we are members of one another. We're going to look at mercy. The gospel is revealed and and shows itself in mercy, both God's mercy to us and then we are merciful towards others. And we will look at our value of worship, that the gospel calls us and demands a response of a whole life of worship. Today, we're looking at our core value of God's 
word, that our gospel is grounded in the scriptures, in the Bible. And to unpack this, we're going to look through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So you can turn there in your Bibles if you have them or flip there on your app. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. It should be on the screen as well. One last thing, at least during this series, maybe beyond, I don't know yet, um, we'd like to add a layer of depth to our time, and we're, uh, we'd like to invite some other voices to read the Scripture that we'll be uh, studying for the day. Uh, I've asked uh, my friend Rich Ferdine to read our text, and he's not able to join us this morning, but he was gracious to record the audio of him reading 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11. And so, um, if I could encourage you to follow along as our brother Rich uh, reads this passage of Scripture as our text today. This is Richard Fredeen asking you to give attention with me to God's Word as found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, the big picture, we're asking the question, how does our gospel centrality show itself in our core values? In this case, what is the connection between the gospel of Jesus, which is the foundation of our faith, and the word of God as one of our values and I think we can look at it a little bit like this. We can, and many people attempt, to uphold Jesus apart from the rest of the Bible. To separate out Jesus from the rest of the storyline of the Scriptures. And I would argue that that is a foolish endeavor. Instead, I would like to make the case, and I think Paul's making the case in 1 Corinthians 15 
That in order to be truly gospel-centered, to truly know and follow Jesus, we actually have to lean into the truthfulness, the historicity, the sufficiency, and the authorities, the authority of the Scriptures. We must be grounded in and anchored to God's Word as our first and final authority because our gospel is grounded in God's Word. We only know Jesus and the news of His grace and His mercy towards us, His life, His death, His resurrection, because it has been revealed to us in the Bible. So we're going to walk that through this morning as we work through 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is grounded in the Word. Therefore, we, with the gospel as the center part of our faith, are also grounded in the Word as our first and final authority. We're going to look at those kind of two points this morning. One, that the gospel of Jesus is grounded in the Word, is grounded in the Scriptures. And two, therefore, we are to be grounded in the Word as our first and final authority. Now, before we get to those points, I'd like to take just a moment and unpack the context of the verses we're looking at today. If we were preaching through a whole series in 1 Corinthians, we would have given you this context on who are these people, who's this Paul guy, what is he writing about. But because we're looking at this passage as it stands, let me just give you a a brief context. This book of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. In our text that we read today, we, we even get a little intro into Paul's story. He was part of a the Jewish religious elite, and he was violent in his pursuit and persecution of this new band of believers in Jesus. But Jesus himself, Acts tells us, uh, Jesus himself in his glorified, resurrected body confronts Paul and changes the course of his life. Paul is transformed from a persecutor of the church to a planter of churches. And as he traveled and taught about Jesus, he would establish leaders, he would appoint elders, and then, often from a distance, he would write letters of encouragement, of correction, building them up, answering questions, doing his work as a teacher. And often he would write to them concerning questions or concerns or problems that were either sent to him directly or relayed to him through others. 1 Corinthians is written then to believers in the city of Corinth, and it was intended to be read aloud to the church and was to be received as authority. This wasn't just a letter from some guy. Paul was an apostle appointed by Jesus himself to build up the church. Now, the church in Corinth was young and zealous and spiritually immature, They were trying to be faithful in a culture that was wildly carnal, meaning everyone pretty much doing whatever made them happy, not unlike our own culture. And also in Corinth, there was a lot of religious plurality, meaning there were many ideas about who God was and who we were in relationship to God, if there was a God, and And who this Jesus character was and what he was all about and what he was teaching. And did he really die? And what's that all about? Lots of opinions. 
So Paul is writing to the church to help them grow up into spiritual maturity and to encourage them to hold fast to the truth of the gospel of Jesus that they've already heard. Look at verse 1. This is our first point. The gospel is grounded in the Word of God. Paul says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. They've already heard this good news. The word translated gospel in the New Testament is the, the Greek word evangelion. It, it, it means to evangelize or evangelism. Those are the words we get from it. The literal translation is a good message or good news. So your roommate or spouse comes home and they have the acceptance letter or the promotion Right, your kid comes home from school or from the game and they're like, I did the thing, I got the grade, or we won the game, right? They're, they're exploding with this sense of excitement and good news. And Paul says to the church, I preached to you some good news and you received it. And then he says, you're, you're standing in it, meaning you are currently believing it. And Paul says, you're being saved by it. This is more than just a temporary celebration. Paul is anchoring this to something eternal. I gave you and you have believed in this good news that has the power to save your souls. This is not just small lowercase good news. This is the good news, Paul's saying. Now there's depth to the gospel that a simple definition doesn't always fully cover. However, for our purposes today, when Paul says, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, this is the definition of, of gospel we're going to run with today. It should be on the screen. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to secure forgiveness and eternal life for all who repent and believe in Him. Let me read that again. The gospel is the good news of what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to secure forgiveness and eternal life for all who repent and believe in Him. And here in chapter 15, Paul is specifically highlighting the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance, Paul says, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Click save on that phrase. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There it is again. And that He appears to Cephas and then to the Twelve and then to others. We'll pause there. Paul is saying that the, the crucial component to their faith the crucial component to the faith of the brothers and sisters in Corinth is Paul says this is of first importance, not timeline first, priority first, of utmost importance is that Christ died for sins, was buried and rose again from the dead to new and eternal life. This is a core element to this good news, this gospel, this tenet of their faith. Because if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, the news really isn't all that good. If Jesus wasn't sinless, if he didn't die, if he didn't rise again from the dead, I argue, and I think Paul would argue, you don't really have a gospel. You have news, 
of a guy. But you don't have this kind of news. See, at the time in Corinth, there were questions in the church specifically surrounding the idea of the resurrection from the dead. If, I mean, take a step back for a second and think about it. Yes, it is an odd thing if we only look at the world through our, what we can perceive with our own eyes and ears, right? Did Jesus really die? Was he just sleeping? Did he, if he did die, did he really come back? Did someone just pick up the mantle and run with it afterwards because he was gone? These are likely the sorts of questions that were coming up in Corinth at the time. We don't know specifically what he was addressing, but we do know he thought it was important enough to highlight and hammer on the resurrection. And his reminder is this, don't forget what you already heard, what you already know, and what you already believe. Just a few verses later in chapter 15, we didn't read it this morning, but if you read to verse 15, excuse me, we read to verse 14, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection matters to the story of Jesus. And if you go a little further in verse 19, Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if, if our only hope in this life, those of us who are in Christ, is just the 60 or 70 or 80 years that God might give us on this planet, if it just ends here, Paul says, We are of all people most to be pitied. We are the most pathetic if there's no resurrection from the dead. So gospel centrality here means a confident assurance in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that his resurrection from the dead proves and promises for all those in Jesus our hope of resurrection and glory. And where does he anchor his argument? Look at what Paul says, verse 3. Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures and that he was raised on the third day, verse 4, in accordance with the Scriptures. Five simple words in English that for us are the anchor point for Paul's whole argument. Now, what might Paul be referencing here in accordance with the Scriptures? There's a few. Let me just highlight a couple. Isaiah 53 the whole chapter is fantastic. I encourage you to read it and meditate on it this week. But let's just look at verses 3 through 6. Isaiah 53, listen to this. The prophet Isaiah, generations before Jesus walked on earth in human flesh, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or the prophet Zechariah in chapter 13, verse 7. Listen to this. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
God has revealed in His Word, all through the Law and the Prophets, the Gospel message of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, God's Messiah, would come and would bear the curse of sin in order to secure forgiveness for all those who believe. Paul says that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. And then Paul says he was also raised in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's look at Isaiah 53 again, verse 10, a little further along. The prophet Isaiah says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Comma, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see his offspring. How is this possible if he remains in the grave? He, the Lord, shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his no longer in the grave hand. Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David in his psalm was foretelling the reality that although God's Messiah might die and be buried, he would not stay in the grave. Christ was raised in accordance with the Scriptures, and the church has affirmed this reality for generations. Here's a few lines from the Nicene Creed. Speaking of Jesus, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. Don Carson, Dr. Don Carson, one of the foremost New Testament scholars who is currently alive today, says it this way, the gospel is integrally tied to the Bible's storyline. Indeed, it is incomprehensible without understanding that storyline. He goes on at the end of this longer section, but the point is simply this. The good news of salvation through Jesus Christ makes sense in the context of this storyline and no other. The gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus, only makes sense in the context of this storyline. And separated from the rest of it is, is incomprehensible. It doesn't, doesn't make sense standing alone. Our gospel is grounded in the Word of God. Which leads us to our second and final point, point two. Therefore, we must be grounded in the Word of God. It must be our first and final authority. Notice the first place that Paul goes to defend and prove the gospel is the Scriptures. And now look at verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Paul builds on the testimony of God's word by adding to it the testimony of eyewitnesses to the resurrection, going so far as to say, hey, most of those who, who, who saw it happen, people he talked to, they're still alive. You can go talk to them. Wouldn't that be a nice tool to have as we're sharing the gospel? Like, go talk to Larry. He was there. Just seriously, you got to hear his, 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 the way he explains that story. It's amazing. We don't, we don't have that tangible piece, but this is important. The testimony of the individual is a significant proof and tool in making the gospel known. Those who are interested in membership at River City, as we talk about that, one of the things we do is we want to hear your story. We want to hear how you came to faith in Jesus. We want to hear who shared the gospel with you. How is it bearing fruit in your lives and how can we encourage you? We want to hear that. And we utilize that when we share the hope we have with other people. It's significant and important. But it's not the primary proof. In my opinion, one of the most beautiful rediscoveries that came out of the Protestant Reformation was the do- is the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is Latin for Scripture alone. Now, we don't have time to go into that rabbit hole although I would love to. So we get coffee sometime and go down that rabbit hole, I'm, I'm game. But I do want to highlight a few things. Simply, it means that the Scriptures, as inspired, as revealed, and as preserved by the Holy Spirit, are the supreme authority for all spiritual matters. It's not a claim that all truth of every kind is found in the Bible, rather that the Scripture is the supreme and final authority on every matter on which it speaks. For example, the Bible does not go into any kind of scientific detail on the genetic makeup of humans and animals, but it does speak with clarity That it's the hand of God who created each creature according to its kind. It also speaks with clarity of the unique creation of humanity who alone bears the divine mark and imprint of the image of God. So while it doesn't speak to the DNA of eye or hair or skin color, it speaks volumes about honoring the Imago Dei in your neighbor who may or may not be anything like you outwardly, but inwardly bears the marks of the same maker. So sola scriptura does not mean the Bible is the only authority that exists, but it does mean that it is the first, primary, and final, sufficient authority on all matters of which it speaks. And that all other authorities ultimately must run through and are subject to what the Bible has to say. That means that all other authorities, such as church councils and creeds and traditions, the words and sermons of preachers like this morning, or or commentators, personal revelation and personal experience, any authority that any of those things uh, may claim, they all sit under the Word of God and are interpreted by the Word of God rather than the other way around. Why is this important? Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that this gospel, 
this good news about Jesus, it's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It's not man's words or human opinion or good ideas or strategies. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. That's why this is important. Because a Jesus detached from the storyline and authority of the Bible does not have the power to save. Look at the last part of our passage here, verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, Paul says, so we preach and so you believed. It doesn't matter who preached it. Was it Peter? Was it Paul? Was it someone else? We preach the gospel and you believe. In this gospel, you have found salvation. This is a work of God through the Spirit to open your eyes and awaken your dead heart. That's what this is. For all of us, all of you who have faith in Jesus, He takes your sin. Your life is no longer your own. You are hidden now in His life. Jesus' physical death puts to death your sin. And then in Jesus' resurrection, you are made a new creation. Reborn in a moment. This is the good news that you believe. And yet it's far too easy for us to attempt to hold on to Jesus and neglect or miss the rest of the story of which he is the hero and main character. So what does it look like to have a faith that is grounded and to live a life that is grounded and anchored to the Word of God. Can I offer two things that I think a word-grounded gospel does for followers of Jesus? I think it does, it might do lots of things. I'm just going to highlight two. One, it keeps us from being one-issue Christians. And two, it keeps the gospel where it belongs, at the center. A gospel that's grounded in the Word does two things. It keeps us from being one-issue Christians, and two, it keeps the gospel right at the center of our lives. What do I mean by it keeps us from being one-issue Christians? There are many broken things in our world, and we experience them every day. In fact, some could argue and have a pretty good case that 2020 is just one big broken. Right? I did get an amen last service. It was quiet, but I heard it. All of you are just feeling the weight of how broken 2020 is. You're like, yeah. Right? And we experience these things every day. But what we tend to do is we assume the gospel, like it's there, I believe it, okay, and then direct our passions toward other matters. Abortion, economic disparity and poverty, cultural decline, racism, stewardship of our creation, the breakdown of the family, abuse, human trafficking, loneliness, anxiety, suicide, the list goes on. And each one of these things and many others are deeply personal, deeply significant, and very real. And each one is worth addressing with passion and with intentionality, with honesty and with courage. I am not saying don't talk about those things and just preach the gospel. I'm not saying that. Please hear me very clearly. 
But what I am saying is that a word-grounded gospel actually has something to say to all these and many other things. Because the gospel's focus is to drill down deep into the heart of our core problem, which is our bondage to sin. Only then do I think we can then spend our energies to bring our lives and the gospel at work in us, to bring that to bear in all these spheres. And when that happens, we bring a distinctly Christian perspective to bear, to address matters of life in the womb, of honoring the image of God in others across racial and cultural lines, in offering generously to others because God has been so generous with us, in condemning the sin of enslaving and abusing another image bearer, and in offering eternal hope along with tangible help with a meal or medicine or friendship. The gospel is the foundation and from it flows streams of hope and help to actually address the brokenness we see around us. So that's the first thing I think a word-grounded gospel does. The second thing is, is it keeps the gospel central. God's Word calls us to many things. For example, the Scriptures call us to pray. We don't say, don't talk about prayer, just preach the gospel. No, the Scriptures call us to pray. And the gospel reminds me that because Christ has reconciled me to God, He has taken a wayward, broken, dead rebel and has now put me in right relationship with my Heavenly Father. Because that gospel reality is reality, I can now bring my cares and my concerns and my worries and all my things before Him and He hears me. God's Word calls us to live in community with others. And the gospel reminds me that because God has forgiven me, that I can forgive others. That when we sin against each other, which is normal, we can actually walk in reconciled relationship and forgiveness and extend mercy because God has been so incredibly merciful to me. God's word calls us to worship him. And not just with our mouths, but with our whole lives. And the gospel reminds me that because Jesus' sacrifice was perfect and full and complete, because of that, I can bring my feeble, warbly-voiced, incomplete offerings before the, the Father who is perfect and holy, and He accepts them. That they're beautiful to him because, not because I've brought these imperfect offerings, but because Christ is the perfect and complete offering. So God takes my feeble offerings and multiplies them like fish and bread for the good of others, for his glory, and on the back end of that, for my good. This is what a word grounded gospel does. So if I can encourage you, maybe some tangible takeaways. 
How do, we, how do we then re-engage and lean into God's Word as this source of life for us? Here's a couple ideas. There are 116 days between today and December 31st. And those of you who feel the weight of 2020 are like, can that come a little faster? But you have 116 days between now until the end of the year. Can I encourage you, maybe consider a 90-day reading through the Bible plan. It's a lot of reading. If you read slow, you can use all 116. I read slow. So you have a buffer of even a few days. Maybe that would be something valuable to lean into God's Word. But maybe if that's a bit, bit much, there's 150 psalms. 116 days, 150 psalms. If, you're, if you listen to any of the stuff this summer, you could just skip 1 through 11, start with 12, read a couple a day, tackle one or two each day, asking the Spirit of God to give you understanding. Let God's Word inform your worship and your response to Him. Or maybe it's just as simple as saying, I'm going to open every day for the next 31 days with a proverb, asking God for wisdom. In our day, don't we need wisdom to know how to navigate? God, would you, would you answer the prayer that you've promised in your Word that those who lack wisdom should ask of you? And so I'm going to ask of you, and I'm going to open your Word to Proverbs 1 tomorrow and say, God, what would you have to teach me from your Word today? That would be good for me. Friends, we, we're going to continue to fight to be gospel-centered people and not as a buzzword. If you go on Amazon and you just type in gospel-centered into the books and leave the next blank, there's a billion, that might be exaggerating, there's a lot of, of, of answers that will come up, lots of possible gospel-centered fill-in-the-blanks. Some of them are really good. I got some suggestions later if you're interested in book reading. But we don't want it to be just buzzword. And part of the reason we can, part of the way we can guard against that is by leaning into this. God has given us His Word so, so that we might take it up, that we might dig into it, that we might feast from it and ask the Holy Spirit to be our helper and our teacher so that we might ground ourselves here in the Word of God in the Bible as our first and final, our ultimate authority in all matters of life. So that as we read it, as we teach it to one another, our faith might be strengthened, that we might have insight in how to navigate the millions of questions that we all face every day, and we might be strengthened so that at the end of each day, our confidence in the gospel, in who we are in Christ Jesus, might grow in uncertain times rather than continue to waver. This is my prayer for myself and for us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are kind and merciful to us, that you are patient when we are often slow. I pray, Father, for my own heart and for all those who are a part of River City in, in any way, that you would deepen our hunger for your word, that you would show us, reveal to us, Holy Spirit of God, the places where we are malnourished. And would you drive us in your kindness to the, the wealth the banquet table of the Scriptures. 
that we might see and savor Jesus as He is revealed, as His gospel is revealed in Your Word. And would You build us up, encourage us, and equip us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.